fascism. I know, I know, it's really controversial. People get very uncomfortable when you mention it. But to borrow a line, if not now, when? And history shows that mass peaceful protest works. So if you're not protesting now, this would be a good time to start. Welcome to episode 11 of Inside Without Now, a podcast hosted by volunteers with RefuseFascism.org. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers. As some of you, perhaps many of you know, Refuse Fascism was founded in December 2016, before Trump even took office. We identified the Trump-Pence regime as fascist even before they took power and have been consistently, insistently, and courageously calling on people to take to the streets to drive them from power since then, with mass, sustained protest. Over the past few months, we have witnessed so many unmistakably fascist actions on the part of this regime that many influential political commentators are using the F-word, even on mainstream media, such as MSNBC, and talking about what to do. People in places like Minneapolis and Portland are showing us what it looks like to courageously stand up for a better, more just world. But we are also seeing that this regime responds to mass protests the way you'd expect fascists to respond, with brutal repression, threats, lies, and attempts to crush and frighten people into submission. We must confront the need to drive this regime from power not as a distraction from the fight for a better world that truly dismantles white supremacy, that puts science and the needs of the most vulnerable over pathological profit-seeking, and that solves the most pressing needs of the planet on which we all depend on, but as a requisite and possible demand that must be realized in order to attain anything good. I am not talking about sitting back, waiting, and hoping for change in November. I'm not talking about curtailing our demands for a more just world in order to elect someone more palatable to conservatives who recoil from the boorish cruelty of Trump. I am talking about raising the demand that the Trump-Pence regime must go in the streets so powerfully, so massively, that they actually are removed from power before that. Today, we are going to share commentary from Andy Z one of the hosts of the Revolution Nothing Less RNL show on YouTube, and a co-initiator of Refuse Fascism, analyzing this moment that we are in with all of its danger and potential. Then we are sharing an interview with Sarah Posner, author of the new book, Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump, recorded on July 20th. I also want to alert our listeners to an important announcement that will be coming out on RefuseFascism.org in the coming days. As Trump threatens the elections and sends fascist stormtroopers into cities, stay in the streets in August. Build for united nationwide mass protests. Saturday, September 5th, demand Trump-Pence out now. The only way this mass mobilization can happen is if you get involved. Please visit RefuseFascism.org and sign up. 
to get involved, follow us on social media at Refuse Fascism and click the donate button on refusefascism.org to let us know you're in. What did you see? What did you think of what you just saw in Portland, Oregon? When you saw the paramilitary forces dressed in full camouflage, gas masks, weapons drawn, firing projectiles, stun grenades, tear gas, firing point blank at hundreds and thousands of protesters who were standing up against police brutality and the murder of black people. Did it look like a movie, unreal and having little to do with you? Did you file it under business as usual for a news story about the US military in Afghanistan or Yemen? and then go about your business? If your eyes were open and you have a conscience, you were outraged, and maybe you cursed Trump. But did you think these protesters are out of line and ruining things for good protesters, or hurting Democrats for the elections? Or perhaps better, did you cheer and take heart from the night after night coverage of the protesters and the waves of people coming out of the big middle class, the housewives, the dads, the vets, and even the Grantifa? But did you cheer, donate, and then move on? I'll be blunt. Are your eyes wide shut? Do you see what's behind those images? What they mean? And what do they tell us about where things are right now in this country and where things are headed fast? In early June, Bob Avakian wrote an article titled, Radical Change is Coming. Will it be emancipating or enslaving? Revolutionary or reactionary? Since written those words, that prediction, which is based on a scientific analysis of the situation we face and what is driving it, have become more and more real. There continues to be the beautiful and heroic struggle of the people against the oppression, brutality, and police murder of black people and people of color and against the legacy of white supremacy more generally. A rising of millions so long overdue and welcome and opening minds up and eyes every single day. Yet on the other side, there is not just an escalation of vicious violence against the people, but a change in the governing norms of this country with potentially dire and even catastrophic consequences for any and every fight for a better world. The subject of today's RNL, The Revolution Nothing Less show commentary, which is too little really understood, is that over the last month, the foul and gaseous utterances from the mouth of Trump, his ominous executive orders for a full-out police state, and now the fascist paramilitary forces that he has put on the ground in Portland and Seattle with an announced threat to deploy as many as 50,000 more such armed forces to cities around the country, directly targeting the youth in the inner cities. All of this has definite objective. What people don't know or refuse to see has been a qualitative advance towards a fascist America, where the law is whatever Trump and his regime say it is, backed up with brute force, accountable only to his regime. This is a qualitative leap towards a fascist America, and it is well on its way if we don't stop it. This is not a mere election year ploy. It is not political theater to feed his rabid base. It is not a diversion from our beautiful struggle. It is an operation to crush that struggle in every struggle for justice and to wipe out its opposition from the Democrats. It is not quasi, neo, protive, or sort of fascism. It is fascism, and it is happening here. There's blood on the streets, the people's blood, and everyone better see and feel that. There's a terror of unidentified paramilitary forces snatching people off the street without cause, 
and recognize that this is not rogue. It is ordered and backed by Trump, his Attorney General William Barr, the head of Homeland Security Chad Wolf, and backed by a fascist Republican Party. This is real and it has direction. Take it in. It's evidence and it leads to a conclusion you don't want to, but need to recognize and act on. I'll say it again. Non-lethal bullets to the heads of protesters in Portland. While fascist vigilantes amped up by Trump kill Black Lives Matter protesters with cars and then this week shooting them with guns. This is the slippery slope gathering momentum of what's to come on a whole other level if we don't stop it. Let no one say in this country, as people tried to do in Nazi Germany, that we didn't see it and we didn't know. Over the last 10 days, the Trump-Pence fascist regime has launched two different federal quasi-military operations. A letter from a reader published on Revcom.us titled, Two Operations, One Fascist Offensive, states, These two operations, Operation Diligent Valor and Operation Legend, are different in many ways but each is an outrageous assault on the masses of people and on constitutional rules and norms in the U.S. And if the regime is allowed to get away with this, taken together they mark a major leap in consolidating fully fascist rule, the exercise of blatant dictatorship of the bourgeois, which means the capitalist class ruling through reliance on open terror and violence. I will come to Operation Legend later in this show. This operation involves sending federal forces into the inner cities to be directed against the youth, ostensibly to stop them from killing each other, but the reality will be quite the opposite. Trump is packaging both of these operations as part of his election campaign as the law and order candidate. Operation Diligent Valor, directed now against protests in Portland and Seattle, is aimed straight at the right to dissent, the right to speech, the right to protest. We saw just the tip of the iceberg of what these thugs are doing. In successive executive orders since June 26, Trump has further advanced the doctrine of whatever he says is the law, and that as president, he can do whatever he wants and enforce it as he wants. Make no mistake, deploying federal paramilitary forces is not piggery as usual or Trump staging an out-of-proportion response to acts of graffiti and trash can fires to play to his Fox and Breitbart base as an election year ploy. No, this is a lining up of tens of millions of people behind an ideological and political program, a program of white supremacist fascist society where everything and everyone who does not conform to that program is an enemy. His executive order of June 26 said that the protests of the last 60 days against racism and police brutality were carried out by, quote, rioters, arsonists, and left-wing extremists, some of whom have explicitly identified themselves with ideologies such as Marxism that call for the destruction of the United States system of government, end quote. And these radicals, it went on to say, quote, advance a fringe ideology that paints the United States of America as fundamentally unjust and shamelessly attack the legitimacy of our institutions and the very rule of law itself. Did you hear that? How the belief that America is fundamentally unjust is now being criminalized. Unidentified camouflage-wearing militia jumping out of vans to snatch people off the street without stating cause or crime. That's police state shit. 
Not a made-for-TV movie, but real, setting precedent with the possibility of becoming the norm. And hasn't it been the case for years now that today's outrage becomes tomorrow's norm? Think concentration camps on the border. I have used the term paramilitary. That refers to armed forces who function like military, but are made up of other kinds of irregular forces, not subject to the same rules and constraints as the military. Rules that are, yes, broken consistently by the U.S. military in their wars of occupation. But the paramilitary here is officially accountable only to Trump via his henchmen in the Department of Homeland Security. And not so, by the way, the core of this heavily armed force is made up of federal agents of the Homeland Security Department with a strong presence of the Border Patrol Tactical Team, which is known as BORTAC. It's, this is a special operations unit that is based on the U.S.-Mexico border and has been deployed overseas, including to Iraq and Afghanistan. These are forces that have demonstrated particular loyalty to Trump and his fascist program. And as is well known, and there is public record of this, these forces, as with the local police, are riddled with fascists who, when off-duty, are part of fascist thug forces and who do the same when they're in their uniforms. This is the making of a fascist state. And there is a rough analogy here to how Hitler developed the Gestapo in Nazi Germany out of the thug forces who were loyal to him, the transition of what was called the SA to the SS. This is the story of how the former Nazi party thugs, the SA brown shirts, intimidated people as part of Hitler's rise to power. Then, as Nazi rule over Germany was consolidated, Hitler got rid of the SA, and the SS became the official enforcers. Now, what is happening here today with Trump is a much messier intermingling of these forces and phases, more akin to what is happening in the Philippines today under their Trump, Roberto Duterte. There is another foreboding element to this particular fascist offensive. The Trump-Pence fascist regime is preparing the ground and raising the specter of not leaving office if they don't win the election or if it is contested. They have already announced a campaign to recruit 50,000 of exactly the kind of people who are in these paramilitary units or who, or who support them to become poll watchers, whose job will be what? To intimidate, to harass, and prevent masses of black and Latino people from voting. With the precedent and terms that have been created with Operation Diligent Valor, it's not a stretch to envision these paramilitary troops being deployed to suppress any protest against moves by the Trump-Pence regime to stay in power. As prelude and preparation for this, Trump is sending these forces into Democratic cities now, demonizing the Democratic mayors, as well as Biden, as weak and tools of the radical left who will take away your police and your freedom. When the mayor of Portland was tear-gassed when he went to talk to the protesters, Trump called him weak and celebrated. Look, language matters. It signifies the language of Operation Diligent Valor, a misnomer if ever there was one, is the language of patriarchy, white supremacy, and fascism. There are two prongs, two campaigns, as Trump launches his full-out offensive, his law and order campaign for re-election, which more fundamentally and in its essence is actually bringing a fascist order to rule. Operation Le Legend, directed against the basic youth and against crime, is the second prong, 
and I will be getting into that later in this program. Radical change is coming. There is no going back to the way things were. The dark forces of fascism are out of the basement, and more fundamentally, no one should want to go back to a way of life that on top of every other oppressive thing that this system does to people around the world has its police routinely murder black youth without consequence. A system that can produce a Donald Trump, bring him and his fascist regime to power, and which has brought us to this point that I've been discussing, has surely passed its expiration point. Now is the time for millions of people to act together to drive the Trump-Pence regime from power. That was Andy Z a host of The RNL Show, which you can watch every Thursday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find it by searching YouTube for The RNL Show or The RevComs. Now we'll hear from Sarah Posner, author of Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump, recorded a couple weeks ago. I want to start with the big question, the question that your book centers around. Can you explain to us why true believers could possibly believe that God of all people would choose Donald Trump? For Trump's white evangelical base, Christianity, it's a very politicized version of Christianity. So they believe that America was founded as a Christian nation, and Christian nation is defined very narrowly from their perspective of what Christianity is. And so their politicization in the second half of the 20th century was very centered on being a backlash to changes that happened in the American legal system, in American politics, and American culture. So it was a backlash against Brown v. Board of Education and school desegregation. It was a backlash against Supreme Court decisions upholding church-state separation and banning mandatory public school Bible reading and prayer. It was a backlash against other elements of the civil rights movement. It was a backlash against women's rights and LGBTQ rights. So to them, Trump has come along and expressed their grievances in a very potent way for them. And he has made them feel like he is going to give them the power to seize back the power that they feel like they lost and give them the tools of governing either through political appointees at agencies or judicial nominees to reverse these trends that they feel like eroded and in their view, attacked their cultural position. One of the questions that I wondered while I was reading your book was, why has Trump been able to advance Christian fascism in a way that Bush or Reagan could only dream of? It's a few things. One of it, just sort of his sort of bombastic personality for his base, that can be seen as telling it like it is. He's unafraid to take on political correctness or he's unafraid to take on the left, which is out to destroy our religious freedom, which is another way that they frame civil rights for other people as they frame it as an attack on their religious freedom. Unlike, say, Reagan or either of the Bushes, Trump is not concerned about his political legacy or even 
making any kind of gestures towards bipartisanship and compromise. Reagan and both Bushes wanted to at least give an appearance of bipartisanship. They were concerned about how they would be viewed in history. They were much more conventional Republicans than Trump is. Trump isn't really conventional in that sense at all. But in a lot of ways, he personifies the sort of leader that the American right has been looking for, which is somebody who would sort of dispense with these, uh, what they would consider niceties of liberal democracy and be much more of a strong man to achieve their goals. And do you think that those elements, the freedom that he has or he feels he has to throw away those niceties or the things that make democratic rights norms, those types of things, that so many things foundational, his ability to feel unburdened by those and to unburden others. Is that part of why he's able to unite people that seem so different? DeVos isn't the same as a Pompeo in terms of their understanding of religion or um, Barr isn't the same as a pet. They're different. Is it that they have that same underlining agenda? Well, I think that I would sort of phrase it differently. I do think that Barr and Pence and Pompeo and DeVos all come out of the same kind of religious political movement where they believe that it's okay for this very conservative, radical right version of Christianity to be the lodestar for governing and the law. I think that the coalition that Trump put together, if you look at, say, Stephen Miller, and Betsy DeVos and Mike Pompeo, they weren't necessarily coming from the same milieu. I would put Stephen Miller much more coming from the nativist white nationalist right. These two movements, the Christian right and the alt-right, came together in support of Trump because even though they articulate their goals in different ways and have different priorities, the Christian rights stated priorities are more centered on religious liberty and church state separation and abortion and LGBTQ rights. And the uh, alt-right is more centered on white nationalism and white supremacy. But they both found kind of common cause in Trump precisely because he is willing to dispense with the norms of a liberal democracy, separation of powers and independent judiciary, a free press and so on, civil and human rights for everyone, including, you know, out groups. And those both groups found common cause in that approach that Trump has, that strongman approach. So through line of my book is even though they weren't necessarily looking to come together, so early in Trump's primary campaign, a lot of leaders on the Christian right supported somebody like Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz instead. And it was the alt-right that was initially very energized by his nativist and racist rhetoric and policy proposals. This understanding of how he's able to bring that marriage together is one of the most meaningful and strongest arguments in your book for actually the danger that's posed. Because what does it mean if you're able to strengthen a movement that has such a sense of grievance and such a wide breadth of those who see themselves as members. So I think that that's a really important point that you make. I wanted to get into a question about some of what they've successfully done, because it's not just ideas. It's not just independent religious ideas that these leaders hold, but 
but things in the real world, the impacts that they have. Some people know that Mike Pence wants to outlaw abortion, hates LGBTQ people. Some know that Pompeo talks about fighting a holy war. Some know that DeVos has a Christian fundamentalist background. But most people don't fully grasp that these aren't privately held beliefs of a few individuals, but that the Christian fundamentalist ideas are a central driving force in power currently. This is something that throughout your book you talk about in terms of the scope of the impacts that they've had with a special emphasis on HHS. What do you see as some of the most far-reaching impacts that the Christian fundamentalists have made since Trump has been in power? One of the driving ideological forces for the Christian right is the idea that rights for other people, particularly LGBTQ rights and reproductive rights, are necessarily an infringement on Christians who oppose same-sex marriage or who oppose trans rights or oppose abortion. So we saw a lot of this activity leading up to Trump's presidency. People probably remember the Hobby Lobby case, the 2014 Supreme Court decision that basically said a privately held company, its religious rights were violated. It has religious rights and they were violated by having to provide contraception coverage in its employer health care plan. It was a requirement of the Affordable Care Act under Obama. And this caused a huge backlash from the Christian right saying that for Forcing Christian employers to provide this coverage caused them to be complicit in a moral sin. And so basically now most Christian employers can say, we're not covering that. Or at HHS now, they're trying to bolster the ability of contractors and grantees who get federal taxpayer funded grants to provide social services or needed social services across the country. Their ability to say, I'm not serving this person or I'm not providing this service because it interferes with my moral conscience. They developed an entire division within the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services called the Conscience and Religious Freedom Division, which is entirely designed for conservative Christians to file complaints against states, against insurance carriers, against hospitals, um, claiming that some requirement or some medical procedure or a policy or a law violates their religious conscience. So it's a really an embedding of this idea that these rights for other people, your right to get contraception from your health care plan, your right as an LGBTQ person to exist <laughs> is a necessarily an infringement on Christians' religious rights. I think that one of the things that strikes me is also you write in the book about how the judges that he's put, not just in the Supreme Court, but across the country, and you think about the far-reaching impacts of that, is one of the biggest ways that they've been able to accelerate their program. A very important thing for people to understand about judges is that Trump is nominating very young judges. Federal judges have lifetime appointments. And so when you nominate somebody who's in their 30s to one of the most powerful appellate courts in the country, they can have an impact on the law. I mean, obviously the Supreme Court has an impact on the law, but appellate judges, even trial court judges. The scope and the gravity for so many people, when you think of these, not to belabor the point, but many, many more people go through these federal courts than the Supreme Court here. In terms of people's everyday life, this is a huge impact, especially for women, LGBTQ people, people of color. So I think that it's really important to pay attention to those things. 
would be interested to hear how the Christian fascist base is accepting this ridiculous conversion story from Roger Stone. The leaders are so full of BS, but what about the base? How do they see him? So that's interesting. You know, Roger Stone was interviewed by the Christian Broadcasting Network's David Brody, who's the network's political correspondent. And the interview, I think, was also rebroadcast or written about on this site called Just the News, which uh, is a new site that was launched by John Solomon, the sort of notorious opinion writer who pressed a lot of the Trump administration's bullshit Ukraine arguments. They ran this story about Roger Stone finding Jesus. Um, there have been leaders who, like Ralph Reed, tweeted approvingly about it. There is quite a bit of credence in the base for the conspiracy theory that the deep state is out to get Donald Trump and people close to him. In many of these circles, like Mike Flynn is seen as a victim and a hero, and there seems to be a push to portray uh, Stone in a similar light. I do think that there is a lot of sympathy for the idea that Stone and Flynn and Trump himself have been wrongly targeted by law enforcement or by, in Trump's case, by Congress. And if you think about the belief that they of them hold that God anointed Trump to be the leader, then those who Trump brings close to him and sees as loyal must by then be sanctified in a certain way. If their infallible leader is embracing him, then they should too, I think might be part of it. But it's a- I, I think that's part of it. I think it's also just a kind of herd mentality a little bit about some of these conspiracy mm -hmm. theories without even really knowing that much about what Mike Flynn was accused of doing and what he's he pled guilty to doing. And similarly with Stone. Yeah. How does Trump's adultery sit with evangelicals? Well, all of the evangelicals who supported him knew about the um, Stormy Daniels and also the Access Hollywood tape. And again and again, they say this thing, well, sometimes, you know, we're all sinners and sometimes God chooses an unlikely leader. And in this case, Trump has come at a moment when America is on the brink of not being a Christian nation anymore, being taken over by liberal political correctness. And God has chosen Trump to reverse that and give us back the Christian America that God intended. I wanted to go back to your book. Um, in it, you wrote, the Christian right movement was born out of grievances against civil rights gains for Blacks and a backlash against the government's effort to ensure those gains would endure. MAGA to the alt-right is clearly about making America white again. They're explicit about it, they come out in the open, there's no hiding it. What role do shared grievances play in that marriage of the so-called alt-right, the white supremacists, overt white supremacists, and the Christian fascists? And why do you feel or you think that white supremacy is a central part of that? The Christian right as a movement that came together in the late 1970s, first with the Moral Majority and then there were other organizations that were formed. The sort of founding myth of this movement is that these evangelicals and fundamentalist Christians were motivated to get involved in electoral politics because of Roe v. Wade. But in fact, the history shows something different. Yes, conservative Catholics, right-wing Catholics, who at the time were very opposed to abortion, and there were some evangelicals who opposed abortion too, 
But at the time, New Right, a growing political movement at that time, was trying to organize a coalition of voters that included white evangelical Christians in a coalition to build a new right-wing movement that would be a sort of more radical answer to country club republicanism or, or you know, the republicanism of the, or conservatism of the national review. But they could not get white evangelicals to get excited about the abortion issue. But what they were excited about was efforts by the federal government to ensure that private schools, private K through 12 schools and colleges and universities were not being run with segregationist or discriminatory policies. So this resulted from a series of court cases where parents in Mississippi challenged, they were called segregation academies. These were academies in the South, schools in the South, K-12 schools in the South that were formed explicitly to have a segregated school after grounding board of education and school desegregation. And the course basically said, you can't do that. You can't like form a private school to avoid the legal requirements that apply to public schools. You can't have a private school and still get a tax exemption. And so uh, evangelicals fought and fundamentals fought a lengthy battle with the IRS, which had developed all of these different policies to ensure that K through 12 schools, including K through 12 Christian schools, were ensuring that they could have a more diverse and not segregated student body. And most famously, the IRS took away the tax exempt status of Bob Jones University, a college in Greenville, South Carolina, that had a policy against interracial dating. And so this was a huge thing in the evangelical fundamentalist community because they believed that the government was infringing on their religious freedom. And so this sort of idea, even though at the time was about race, this idea that the government getting involved to address these civil rights issues being necessarily an infringement of Christian religious freedom, then still hangs over the Christian right. So you saw the same kinds of arguments being made after the Supreme Court legalized marriage equality. They started saying, oh, you know, is the IRS going to come take away our tax exempt status because we oppose marriage equality? I mean, that didn't happen. But that is the same kind of fears and anxieties that they try to generate in the base. As time went on, the Christian right was very deliberate in portraying itself as not being about race. And they did a lot of work, especially in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, bring in more, more diverse leaders so it wouldn't seem like that they were just a movement of white people. But that really was their beginning. And I think that even though they did have some success in bringing in Latino and Black pastors and leaders into the movement, people who were um, shared their opposition to abortion and LGBTQ rights, the fact that they have stuck with Trump. And so like everything that Trump has done is now like, oh, well, we'll let that racist comment pass because he's doing all these other things on abortion or, or religious freedom, or we'll let the child separation policy pass because of all these other things. They actively justified and rationalized these things. They rationalized his child separation policy. They rationalized keeping him in cages. And they've rationalized almost everything he's done and cheerleading his judges. He's nominated about a dozen judges who would not say in their confirmation hearings whether they thought Brown v. Board of Education was rightly decided. I mean, we're used to them taking that, being so cagey about that on Roe v. Wade. 
but it was kind of unprecedented for that number of them to refuse to take a position on Brown v. Board of Education. And a lot of those sentiments and the centrality of, of white supremacy and the nakedness of it and the way that it was very obvious to many people in his Mount Rushmore speech, the whole manifest destiny, such many people were kind of realizing it for the first time, I think, around that speech. Right. But in the book, I talk about how he energized the alt-right pretty much right out of the box, you know, was coming down the escalator and saying that Mexicans were criminals and rapists. He put forth his immigration policy in, in August of 2015 when he had just launched his primary bid. And they were very excited about that. And there were some evangelical leaders who were getting on board with him at the time, but there wasn't the mass cola thing around him that happened later. But still, a lot of the evangelicals who opposed him now are either silent or completely on board with him. I mean, look at somebody like Ted Cruz, who did battle with Trump after Trump insulted his wife and pinned his father to this crazy conspiracy theory about the JFK assassination. And now he's one of Trump's number one supporters in the Senate will back him on virtually anything as he's become more and more overt about his racism, which was pretty overt going back to the beginning of his campaign. But there's just been more and more of a coalescing around him and treating it as not a big deal. I mean, in the book, I talk about like a series of events, shithole countries comment, Charlottesville. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And he receives no pushback from his evangelical advisors on this. I wanted to shift the conversation to to what's going on with coronavirus. Refuse Fascism has a statement of conscience available on refusefascism.org. And in it, in our statement, we argue that the regime legends the very notion of objective truth, trafficking not merely in lies, but in flagrant campaigns of disinformation. They purge those who refuse to march in lockstep, then pack the judiciary, the police, and the military, the executive and legislative branches, and the state houses with fascists and all manner of reactionary zealots, including theocratic Christian fascists, who see this as their last chance to cement their domination for generations to come. And I'm wondering, how do you see this playing out? Do you see this playing out in terms of the attacks on objective truth in relation to Trump Pence's COVID-19 response? And the influence that Christian fundamentalists have had in shaping that response. For a lot of them, they have bought the claim that Trump has handled this perfectly. Like he's done all the right things and they will follow his twisting of data to try to say death rates are down, so that's okay. Or his claim that the only reason why we're seeing more cases is we're testing more. Or for a long time, obviously, his mask demonizing. It's just part of a pattern between Trump and his base, where no matter what either incompetent or corrupt thing he does, they find a way to spin it as, oh, like he's actually doing really great or it's just the fake news is out to get him and they're twisting his words or leveling these false claims at him. Then you have the added issue of churches. There's a raft of lawsuits and very prominent Christian right 
law firms involved in these lawsuits representing churches and pastors and claiming that stay-at-home orders or restrictions on gathering sizes infringes on their religious freedom. Again, we're back to this issue of the government doing something to protect everybody and that it's portrayed as violating their religious freedom. You know, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of the dynamic that we're seeing between them. That's a really important point about how the notion of religious freedom and how that gets weaponized to further this regime's program and indeed crimes. And I think for a lot of people, including people of faith who don't share this vicious program, you know, it seems so to them, unchristian. Why would you want to send children to die? Why would you want to kill teachers? Why? How can you justify this? And I think it's a reckoning of what that program is about. And the other kind of amazing thing about all of it is the Christian right has spent decades trying to claim that even the smallest, most remote use of government resources for abortion or even contraception is a violation of their moral conscience. Yet now the government, through its incompetence and deliberate mishandling of the coronavirus crisis, is endangering and has led to the death of over a hundred thousand Americans. Do you see an erosion of his Christian fascist basis in terms of the response to COVID-19? There's been a, a couple of polls out which show his approval on the coronavirus issue among white evangelicals to be in the 60s. His approval with evangelicals since mid-2016 has wavered between the mid-60s and like, the high 70s. But because the culture wars are so embedded in the ideology that drives these voters, they may be disapproving of his handling of the coronavirus, but come November, when they're in the ballot box, they're going to say to themselves, but can I vote for Joe Biden, who Donald Trump has been telling me it wants to abolish the police in the suburbs and will bring on abortion on demand and like all of their usual talking points. There was a Pew survey which found his approval among white evangelicals on the coronavirus to be in the 60s, but 82% of them said they would still vote for him in November. So about the same amount that did vote for him. Yeah. What does the world look like if the Christian right continues to win? The Christian right ideas are increasingly unpopular with the general public. Most people in the United States do not agree that abortion should be illegal in all cases. They do not agree that the rights of LGBTQ people should be constrained. They don't agree that people should be able to raise a religious objection to the exercising of the rights of these other people because of its political clout under Trump and within the Republican Party, it has been able to consolidate power under Trump in unprecedented ways through his judicial appointments, but also with the free reign that he has given political appointees within agencies. And so their worldview is that the United States was founded as a Christian nation and that it's God's intention that America be governed by what they call a biblical worldview or a Christian worldview. And so that view is not necessarily the same Christianity that many other American Christians follow. This idea that there is no separation of church and state, that the state should be a robust force for protecting the rights of these Christians from incursions from the left, 
or from political correctness or from secularism. These are all kind of bogeymen in this culture war. If Trump were to win re-election and if Republicans maintained control of the Senate, they would continue to consolidate that kind of power through these ideological political appointments and judicial nominations. Thinking about the implications of what that would mean for women, what the implications of that would mean for LGBTQ people, people of color. I think there's such a pace of how many things happen in the course of a week. You think of how much they've been able to transform things in only four years. And that's in part because of his willingness to dispense with the institutions and norms of a liberal democracy, the rule of law, separation of powers, independent judiciary, and so forth. But when you look at, for example, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo released this report on this commission on unalienable rights that he created at the Department of State, which prioritizes this idea of what he calls God-given rights to religious freedom that take precedence over other rights. Well, this is not as explicitly as some other people have done, but Pompeo is articulating this very idea of religious freedom of conservative Christians being under assault by the rights of others. How does the white evangelical ideology relate to the calls for law and order and unleashing the effects? By and large, the Christian right sees that as being a necessary pushback on what Trump and his allies would describe as anarchy in the streets. They're receptive to the idea that anti-fascist protesters or pro-democracy protesters or whatever category the protesters might put themselves in, that these are left-wing people who are anti-American. I mean, this is why Bill Barr had the protesters cleared with tear gas so that Trump could walk across the square and hold up the Bible upside down in front of St. John's Church. It was precisely because he thought that the evangelical base actually liked the idea that he had forcibly cleared the square of anarchists or however he characterized it in order to defend their religious freedom. Yeah, I think that people of conscience who really looked at that were able to see how it was ominous, how it was a police state measure, what it means that you're unleashing the military on people. I think that it wasn't performative. And I think that there's a lot of work to do with people about dispelling this myth that he's performing something. He's doing it. And he believes that. And I think one of the things that, that your book talks about is the importance of a strong man for the Christian right. And I think that's what people likely saw in his actions that night and not willing to bow down to those who oppose him. I have one last question. In Unholy, you write, Trump's white evangelical supporters make up an army of partisans decades in the making, and they will not quietly retreat in the face of defeat. Given the role they played rallying to his defense in the face of impeachment, what should we expect of a base that believes themselves to be social warriors called on by God to protect Trump in the event that he loses or in the event there is a contested election? Well, I think that there would be questioning of the results particularly if we have vote by mail because of the pandemic. Trump has been laying a lot and his allies have been laying a lot of groundwork of conspiracy theories that vote by mail is rigged or subject to voter fraud. So I think just questioning the results and, and sowing doubt about the results in people's minds, particularly when we know now that we're gonna have a situation if we have vote by mail, 
that the results will not be in right away. We're not going to have that election night thing where the cable channels have the blue and red map and they just start plugging in the colors for each state and we're going to know by midnight or three in the morning. It's not going to be that way and we're going to have to wait for the results to be counted. And that's going to be a period when Trump and his allies are really going to raise questions about the result or claim fraud or just so doubt in people's minds. And then I think if Biden were to win and take office, that there would be a lot of time spent trying to delegitimize his presidency, which is dangerous if the Republicans maintain control of the Senate. But if you think about the ways in which the Republicans in Congress tried to delegitimize Barack Obama's presidency and also Hillary Clinton's candidacy and tenure as Secretary of State, I think we would be looking at a lot of that. Obviously, they would not be able to do it as effectively if Republicans don't have control of the House or the Senate. However, they would still, I think, use media and social media and that kind of propaganda mechanisms to try to undermine these things. It's very worrisome and very dangerous because I think as we saw with the impeachment proceedings, the conspiracy theory runs deep. The conspiracy theory that the deep state is out to get Trump and that this was um, an illegitimate exercise of, of power by Congress to even impeach him at all. Do you see the Christian fundamentalist base supporting him in, let's say, calling off elections or outright rejecting the results. I mean, I, I hope I'm right about this very difficult thing. He doesn't have the authority to call off the election, I mean, legally speaking. But I do think that these voter fraud or rigging kinds of questions is definitely something his face is going to engage in with him. Uh, because to them, losing the election would probably be a pretty lethal blow to a lot of their policy ambitions. Thanks for tuning in to Inside Without Now. Be sure to subscribe to stay connected and get the latest episodes. Remember to stay tuned to refusefascism.org for an important call to act on September 5th, coming out very soon. We are heading into a showdown with these elections. If there even is an election, over whether or not this fascist regime will remain in power. And the form of rule we saw in Portland, what is beginning in Chicago, a society where dissent, all dissent, is criminalized. We are in a moment where the energy of people of all nationalities and many different political beliefs who came into the streets outraged by the wanton murder, the brutal murder of George Floyd, need to show the same and greater resolve to remove this regime from power. We need to put aside our differences that in the face of fascism are secondary, even petty, so that over the next several weeks, everyone, every movement for social justice, for environmental justice, for everything, that justice demands come together to act now so that the millions of people who feel a deep hatred for Trump can and really must be transformed into a mass upsurge of sustained nonviolent protests demanding Trump Pence out now. To support this, 
right now. Donate. You can Venmo Refuse-Fascism, Cash App Refuse Fascism, or go to the website RefuseFascism.org. Follow at Refuse Fascism on social media and join us in raising the demand. Trump Pence, out now. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. See you in the streets real soon.